Hello and welcome to Silax, the podcast where we talk about scientific developments and technological changes in Luxembourg. Of course, as usual, we are powered by Research Luxembourg and recording at the RTL City Studios. And our guest today is Alexandru Andrian Tantar, who is the group leader for Trustworthy AI at the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, with activities that overarch analytics, machine learning and artificial intelligence, as well as applications in Industry 4.0, the health sector and image processing for space observation. He previously led the business analytics group at least and was research associate and Marie Curie AFR fellow at SNT. Alexandru holds a PhD degree in computer science, which he received from the University of Lille in France. Thank you very much for coming today. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I, when I was preparing for the podcast today, actually, also in the morning, I talked to one of my friends and, you know, I was like, oh, okay, so I'm going to talk to a chat GPT expert, an AI expert. Do you have any questions I could ask? And it's a person that is not very much into AI. And he said, like, no, I ask all my questions to chat GPT already, so I don't need okay. any answers. <laughs> But I hope that we will have a nice discussion here. So first of all, I have you here because I want to talk AI, but I also want to talk chat GPT. I have to do it. Everybody else was telling me, you know, upstairs at RTL Today Radio, they were like, but you have to have an expert. We want to know more. So there we go. What is chat GPT? Actually, chat GPT belongs to this family of what they call large language models. Right? LLMs, so-called. Exactly. exactly. So Behind, you would have what we call also deep learning. So it's one particular class of, of models. We, we speak of transformers, for example. In the more details, you have things which are called encoders, decoders, or functions within the model. But basically, it boils down to complex models, which work with large masses of data. So this is where you also have this name of large language models, because you, you'll be feeding the models with large quantities of information you get, for example, from books over the internet. It can be conversations, can be codes, what we actually see with, uh, with ChatGPT. So in, in very short, ChatGPT would be deep learning language model. And it is related to machine learning as such as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yes. So you would have those uh, different sort of boundaries where you have machine learning in general, and then you would have AI and, of course, different kinds of flavors within what is AI. Generally speaking, we would have AI which is applied to particular problems, right? So you would speak of image recognition, for example, it may be other areas where you have semantic segmentation. So you really need to understand, for example, within images, what would be the different objects you'd be looking at uh, without necessarily having the, the purpose of classification. You have uh, language models, and in here the same, you would have different classes. It can be conversational type of models, chat GPT, so and the GPT in itself is the generative pre-trained transformer. This is what the GPT would stand for. So it can be used to generate. In the end, you would be generating text, but this text can represent code. And, uh, there will be plenty of examples with uh, chat GPT and other models which would be specialized exactly on this. There is something, for example, which is called codex. Um, other models which would be trained to, to summarize text. And purposes and the training we actually do, we, we apply to those models can be To different ends. So what's the story with AI experts? Like, what is your approach to chat GPT? Are you a bit like, oh, come on, guys, it's been there forever and it's just one. Why is there a craze? Or are you actually excited about it? So for sure, it's the most advanced conversational model we have. Then it's not the most advanced language model we have. Chat GPT relies on a family of models, which generically would be called GPT, starting from GPT-3. Behind chat GPT, you have something which is GPT-3.5. So those models were out there for a while. 
And there, there would be a number of considerations if I'm to, to answer to the question. If you're looking on the camp of more machine learning AI researchers, that maybe not always uh, sort of make that this is the wow type of uh, model. There is, of course, uh, a lot of that. But then if you're looking from the outside, some of those considerations, if I'm looking at bias, at fairness, reasoning in itself, those would not be immediately visible. So then the, the approach and the perception, I think, you, you would have of this model. And we see it a bit in the media. We see it even, you know, just discussing over, over a dinner. We see the effect it makes. And then it's, of course, normal to come up with questions of what is the impact? What are the next steps? What are the things we, we are supposed to, to look into as individuals, as society? Research-wise, it is, again, it is an advancement. Then we, we know there are many questions which are still not answered with ChatGPT and important questions, of course. So do we actually know how it works? What do we know? We, we have a certain view of how it was trained. We, we know, of course, from the previous examples, so I was mentioning GPT-3, the way it is trained, it usually goes in two phases. So we have the first phase, which is basically language modeling. And maybe opening in here a sort of a parenthesis. What those models do behind is just identify and simplifying things, identify correlations. So if I say up or you say probably down, if I say fruits and you say probably vegetables. So this is a bit how it functions behind in a more complex manner, of course, but endpoint is just capturing uh, in some sense those correlations. So when you're training such a model for the language modeling part, basically you'll be feeding texts and uh, then what you're asking is uh, given a part of the text to predict what follows. So those would function as sort of a recurrent manner. So it will just go over the text predicting what are the next words. But this is the first phase, again, generally speaking, in the training. And then you have the fine-tuning of the model. So in the fine-tuning, it's this purpose for the model to be, can be a conversational model. And this is the case with ChatGPT, can be a model which is trained to answer questions, question answering type of uh, setups, which is not entirely the same like uh, what chat uh, GPT is doing. Uh, can be, uh, I don't know, generating, for example, a summary of, uh, of a text, but those are the two main stages you would have in training. Now with chat GPT, we do not have entirely the full details. There is this additional part of reinforcement learning with, uh, with human feedback. So it gets a little bit back to how we as, as people, as humans, how we learn. So when we have a new experience and we, we learn from that experience, it's based on some form of um, reward, some form of feedback. And that uh, feedback or reward can be can be a positive, can be a negative, mm -hmm. depending on the experience, right? Um, and this is the part which was sort of publicized uh, with, uh, with ChatGPT. We know that there were people uh, that were involved in the in the training. So if you if you're asking now a question to ChatGPT, you would get a relatively straightforward answer. But in the training from, again, what was made publicly available, would know that there would have been a number of answers and not just one. And then those answers are supposedly ranked by, by someone, which is taking this approach of a sort of a reviewer for, for the answer. And then the model gets a reward based on this ranking. And this is how, in the end, ChatGPT is, is trained. But then the full details of, of the model, how it's, it's still a model developed by, by a company, of course, so the full details, we don't have them. Do you, we know what the training data is? I think, I personally, don't remember having seen the, the full details. I mean, you'd have specifications like data provided over the internet. Uh, you, you'd have, uh, like what I was mentioning before, with 
textbooks uh, can be really publicly available data over the, the internet, um, but the full, the exact details of what the training data was, um, I don't think we have that information. You mentioned uh, GPT 3.5, yes. you said, yes. and 3. Point in general. So that was basically the pre- predecessor of exactly. ChatGPT. And how it worked was that you could provide the training data yourself. Mm, yes, but then we need to differentiate a bit in, within what is AI, the different types of training methodologies you could have. So for many, many cases, you'd go into what is called a supervised learning. So in supervised learning, basically, you have a pair of input-output. And so to say, if I give one particular question, I know exactly what is the, the answer. So that's a sort of a label. If I take the the case with the image classification, right, I would have the input, which is the image in itself. And then the output is the class of the object which is represented in that image. It can be a building, can be, I don't know, a cat, a dog. And this is the supervised learning. Now, you have unsupervised learning and, and different different flavors in there. And this is where we have then advances, self-supervised and so forth. But basically the model in, in that language modeling part, right, needs to go over text and, and predict what follows. So in that sense, it's basically an unsupervised learning approach. Then if you go into the reinforcement learning, get that input from, from the outside. Um, so in, in here you have a bit of a mix because you also need to to, to look at sort of limitations, safeguards, which were put in place for ChatGPT. And if you're comparing, for example, answers that would be given by predecessors of uh, ChatGPT, you, you would see that there isn't exactly this part of what people maybe would qualify as common sense. One, one example, which I think is on the OpenAI website, is a question along the lines of, was Christopher Columbus happy to, to get to the US in 2015, or America, I don't remember exactly how it was phrased. And the, the former model goes with, of course, I mean, um, it was very happy and so forth, so I don't know, I don't remember the exact answer. But then ChatGPT uh, replies by saying, well, Christopher Columbus didn't get, of course, to, to the Americas in 2015, but if we were to pretend that it were the case, then this is probably the approach he, he would have. So there are those differences if you're looking at the training, at how it's put in place and, and the full way of interacting with, with people. And one aspect which personally I find interesting in here is, as I was mentioning of this reinforcement learning with, uh, with the human feedback, it's not just the quality of the answer, but it's also the way the model is answering. So there would be many, many examples out there where the model is plainly wrong in, in the answer it gives. It can be on different uh, cases. It can be about mathematics, for example. It can be about reasoning. But it provides the answer in such a confident manner, right? So this is part of the training in itself, where you have someone which is ranking the, the answers and saying, this is an acceptable answer because it was so confident in the way it was provided. Ooh, a lot of questions and a lot of things to say. But before I go on and ask more questions, I was just thinking that this is the moment for us to look at the pub quiz question, because it's a little bit related to the discussion. We said, you know, human interaction and uh, AI and all that. So if you could ask the question and listeners remember, the answer will be only at the end of the podcast. Okay, so I was thinking it's interesting to look at how those models and maybe ChatGPT in particular compared to the human brain from a cognitive point of view. Remember the answer only at the end? Well, maybe you can try and ask ChatGPT for an answer. I would really be curious what it says to that. You did? (laughs) Yes. 
Okay, so, so will your answer be actually really from ChatGPT or not? Um, no, I, I of course can give you what the answer was with uh, with ChatGPT, but I think there are a lot more nuances to, to the question and to the answer, of course. And this is also a good point, a lot more nuances, right? Yes. The moment you have an expert, you're going to get the nuance. But this is also the tricky part, because as I know, there's a lot of discussion about the future of education and all that, yes. right? And if we start looking at it from, I don't know, a student of the first year course at university, then most probably ChatGPT is going to give a satisfactory answer. If you go for, I don't know, master's degree, then most probably we'll be expecting a bit more. I can see you're a bit like, no, uh, no yes. It can actually be surprising because this is a model that passed a number of very complex tests, including an IQ, it's scored an IQ of 447. So this is above 99.9% of the population. So there are those examples where you say, if we are to put chat GPT models like in different roles where they need those models would need to process text, for example, need to extract meaningful information. Those would be models that work all the time, nonstop, at a very low cost if you are to compare it to the human counterpart and at a very high cognitive IQ level. And depending on the way you, you would look at uh, what is cognitive processes, depending on the way you would be looking at what is intelligence. And this is where we, we can get to the, the answers by, by the very end. This is where those nuances would actually come into play. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? A little bit, yes. A little, it because it does for me as well. But, you know, I'm a little bit on the other side, right? So if it comes to content creation and it's actually, you know, you say, oh, there's a human being that is processing something, has the knowledge and then produces a text. Not so happy anymore that ChatGPT is there. But I have to say that me personally, I've been trying to log in many times and it's always at full capacity. Sure, but this is, I would say, only a technicality. And you'll have the, the plus service, which um, supposedly, I personally don't have access to that and didn't try it, but uh, supposedly is somewhat more available, if I can call it like that, than the open public service. I think this is not the main limitation. You'd have other aspects you need to look into. Supposing that everyone, everyone has access, not just to, so to say, chat GPT, but models like chat GPT, you'd have... The point I think we, we started discussing about uh, of where ChatGPT would be used, for example, if uh, it would be someone, a student, for example, starting studies or master level, and what would be the knowledge that is captured by such such models, how it can be used and, and so forth. And those are all important aspects and that lead a little bit into that answer I gave where I'm a little bit uncomfortable. But in the long term, those would be models that would uh, finally enable, I think, or empower people to be more creative, more effective. So basically facilitating our everyday life. At least we can hope so. Absolutely. Yes. Everyone is, I would say, pushing in, in that direction. It's important not to lose out of sight aspects like ethics, for example, reasoning. One of my colleagues is, uh, is looking at chain of thought, for example, or how knowledge is captured within models and you would have more technical aspects like uh, knowledge editing, understanding where knowledge in, in some sense is stored within, within the model. I think more important in overall to understand if, it's not probably the best way to formulate things, but if those models think in some sense in the way we do. Because we had those many examples in the past where even though models would be performing at a high accuracy level, for example, those models would base decisions on, on the wrong factors in uh, in the input. Yes, but what is thinking then? 
Very good question. I'm not sure that I can entirely answer. The way I think most people would project about thinking would be at this high level of concepts, right? But if I'm to look at, this is a different way maybe of turning the, the question. If I'm to look at AI in general, deep learning models in particular, those are mathematical functions behind. It's really something you can just write on paper. It will be a lot of papers for, for ChatGPT, but still you can write it on paper. And imagine now that you have a text and you just feed that text through that formula you, you wrote on paper and by the end the, the formula is answering back. So is this really thinking? And this is something I mean to, to debate in the way we function and how the human brain, for example, would function. Is ChatGPT really thinking? And one one interesting example that caught my attention in the past, not with ChatGPT, was a different model, still a conversation model, was someone asking, what are you thinking about? In question launched to, to the model, and the, the answer answered with something like, well, I was thinking to maybe have a coffee. I would presume the model is not actually you know, thinking about having a coffee, but those models, especially for looking at cognitive type of tasks, we, we want to train those models on. Uh, so I gave that example with image recognition, but can be many others. Those models are trained to replicate the output of how we would function, but not immediately maybe really the way we, we would function. So there is, of course, some some difference in there. Um, I think it's important not to to take everything for, for granted, so to say. So those are still pretty much number crunching machines. I say pretty much because there would be ways of embedding, for example, knowledge. Other colleagues of mine would be working on knowledge representation, inference on knowledge. And you have this trend where you would be combining the more classical machine learning, AI, deep learning models with with knowledge. And this is where you touch, I think, more to what we would call reasoning, because you'd be functioning with different levels of representing the information. You'd have a maybe a very low level where you would be representing words as some uh, form of numerical values. But at the same time, you're passing what the models takes out of those words to knowledge representation. So this is where I think it's getting closer maybe to, to reasoning in the way maybe we would define it. This is all fascinating to me because I have a linguistic background and one of my favorite subjects at university was descriptive grammar. Okay. And the whole idea that you could actually make a language like an algorithm with some kind of a function or whatever else that was really, really passionate, at least for me, most my my mates, not really, but I was really always, you know, trying to make a model out of it. And now it's actually happening in some way or another. And it's also, you know, looking at how people acquire their knowledge, their, their language. In the end, we, it's also learning the, the form and learning the context. Then you can ask, is that thinking or just knowing what to say in the right moment, right? Because if you look at children as well, sometimes my daughter, who is not yet three, says things that are very adult-like, and she's just okay. repeating what we are saying in this context. So it's similar in that sense, I guess. In some sense, yes. At the same time, is for sure not sort of parroting, not simply repeating back. It's one important question with those large language models. For, for reasons which are linked to uh, creativity, to what is creative arts, generally speaking. And because if you have a model which is now gathering information from, let's say, the, what Shakespeare wrote and others, and you'd be just repeating back, at some point it becomes a problem. We've seen it already with models that generate pictures and that generate images. And there was Dali model, for example, which was very much, I think, into the media last year. And there was this challenge where uh, someone was using an AI model and uh, finally won actually the, the challenge. 
I I would understand if, for example, novelists would feel somewhat at disadvantage or not on on the right par with models like ChatGPT. And the same would, uh, of course, the same stands with people that are in creative arts, plastic arts, drawing, for example. But for sure, it's not a model which simply repeats back what uh, what they've seen. So we try different sort of questions like, can you, I don't know, combine a novel like Robinson Crusoe with some some other text. So, so you'd get those kind of examples, which would require quite uh, quite some set of skills. I mean, it's not everyone that can collect all that information and combine it in sometimes even creative style uh, writing, generative type of outputs where you you have a style, let's say, of Baudelaire, which now appears in what is what is generated. But this, I'm, I'm saying this without having, of course, a full view of how the model was trained. We had in the past those examples and on images in, in particular of style transfer, for example, where you'd be giving examples of one one image which represents one particular object and then you need to generate something which is more or less in the same style, right? So images which follow the, the style of, let's say, Van Gogh or other painters. And going, going further, I think it will be also even more difficult to understand where is that sort of borderline, what is the limit between simply repeating what the model was trained on and what is in some sense creative output. Yeah, this is a, again a, in, in creative arts a discussion of plagiarism as well and where, exactly. where we are there. Yes. It's like it's, if you recreate the feeling then are you actually already using the art or not? So that's yet another kind of direction. My personal hope is that it's going to improve the quality of education. I would think the same. It's really a question of how we use the tool. We've seen this a lot uh, in in the past. There would be communities, there would be in New York, I think it already happened, where you have one particular university, Bano, using ChatGPT. And then other examples where you would have teachers which actually encourage uh, the students to use ChatGPT, but not just for the act of generating some output on one particular topic, but coming back at the end and saying, now you need to analyze what was generated and well, have some critical thinking about it. I mean, why, if the case, why it is good, why not? What would be aspects that may be inaccurate? What What is completely false? So I think this is the way to, to go forward. Banning those kind of tools, I think we've seen it in the past, won't work. And to also, I would say, limit maybe some potential we could unlock by, by using those kind of models. Yeah, I just personally hope that there will be teachers that will finally start using computers because we are in some places still there, not mentioning any particular person. But, you know, in general, I do meet teachers who are still not very, very comfortable about using technology. You don't have any comments on that. You don't um, want to go that path. No, well, my... <laughs> Just because you're giving the example of your daughter, my, my son gave a presentation of ChatGPT, he's 10. He would not have a very deep knowledge about the, the topic, but he gave a presentation at his school and I understand that both the kids and the teachers, they, they are quite interested by, by the subject. I think adults and kids approach the topic of AI in, in different manners. They, they would grow with those models being around them in, in different forms. So probably they don't look at those models in the way we as, as adults do. And um, of course, in the same manner that I would say the teachers would look at those. But what I found is that there is a growing interest of ChatGPT. 
sometimes you may say probably it's not entirely justified and even the people in you know in open ai they say they do not entirely understand why they, they get all of this attention um, but i think more and more people will use the the model not in the form we have it today so today you need to go on a website of open ai you would be prompting the the model you'll be launching some questions you you'd get some some answers but those models being integrated in in tools that we use today like if we look at uh, let's say office applications would be within excel there would be already some some examples coding for sure coding environments or generating what is code so programming code based on a description of what the code is expected to do so overall accelerating the way we work but in a transparent model i mean you you will not be sort of knowing directly you won't be entirely aware that you're actually working with that model you're just using a tool so there won't be any competitions on the shortest code for something i would not know about the the shortest code we well, you we know do... the discussion of it specialists of the most beautiful way of doing sure. something right and the shortest as well how many lines i think and this is the the good part i, I would uh, hope to see is that we'll get a competition on who's the most creative even if we're speaking about code about uh, programming languages because the rest is something that to some extent at least we would automate in the future so i'm no longer in that position where i really need to write uh, every line of code it uh, the most compact the most efficient but who can think in some very creative manner so basically finding the question i i find not speaking of just ai but finding the right question is more important than finding the right answer that's um, a good one yes yeah. i think that's going to be a quote for this episode but now uh, going to the name of your group because the group is called trustworthy ai yes. so what is trustworthiness for you so at some point we we realized that machine learning and ai models uh, may may actually fail but fail. only at some point you realized well there is this um, growing sort of adoption of machine learning over the years right where we were looking at performance we were looking at accuracy we were looking at automating tasks you would have robot automation and, and so forth so the, the focus was really more over there so not really questioning how the model functions and one one example that i've seen some now years ago and i was also citing a couple of weeks ago i think a, a study that was run in, in the past where you would have some participants to a study the study were uh, participants were presented with x-rays i think was scans of of the lungs and uh, the purpose was to identify uh, if uh, the scan was of a person developing cancer Um, and the individual participants which have absolutely no training in, in the medical domain individually they would go on what would call let's say accuracy on the range of i think it was around 60% and then put together they managed to get to a score which was above 90 so now the question which is i mean comparable to maybe what doctors would get by analyzing with all the training all the background they they would have so the question would be do you trust then those those participants and in some sense the reasoning so connecting to that question we had before and the detail in there was and when i say participants you need to think of neural networks i mean can be biological neural networks like a, like a brain or artificial neural networks what we have in deep learning models right so the question so is, are you calling human beings just neural networks no absolutely not but the detail in that example was that the participants were just pigeons so if you now think of an artificial neural network being um, to some extent a loose equivalent of a biological neural network 
the same question was done. I mean, do you really trust what that model gives? And again, we had those examples where the results, the outputs of the models were correct, but the way the model was inferring that that output was was completely wrong. So at the level of the European Commission, at some point you have what is called a high-level expert group that come together and give this definition of trustworthy AI. And basically they say we need to be able to build trust with AI and especially in those areas like medicine, like let's say law, so if you're applying AI in court. And we've seen it with uh, with ChatGPT in, in Colombia. Some, so one of the, the judges that ruled by asking ChatGPT. So those are qualified now as being high-risk AI applications. They would be banned. And from from that definition of the high-level expert group, which includes a number of points like explainability, like resilience, human agency and oversight, others. So there will be, there are, I think, seven dimensions in total. This is where we put in place the group. Um, so the group exists since last year before there was this business analytics group. And the focus we take is really about explainability. And we, we touched on other topics, but with the rationale of uh, if we manage to explain why the model gives one particular result. And I want to be clear, this is not something new. We, we are looking at explainability since, uh, since many years. From the, the 70s already, we had models which were interpretable. So we had ways of looking at, at models. Problem comes now somewhat more in, in the research and in the public domain because we have those very complex models that you cannot simply just write on paper, like I was saying with, with a formula that I can put down on paper and, and analyze afterwards and pretending that you'd be able to understand. So we need those mechanisms that can ensure that the models are, for example, fair. They are not biased. We we had those examples in the past in in recruitment, where models were trained on on real data from recruitment processes, and just because the data to start with was was biased, those models are just replicating what they see in the data. So the models would be biased. So within this trustworthy AI field, you'd have in many many different dimensions, including touching to competences, skills, topics outside what is computer science. So social sciences, for example. So there are many dimensions for which we need to put in place formal ways of verifying explainability, fairness, and, and so forth. So this is a bit uh, the, the rationale for the name of the group and uh, for the, the activity behind it. So wait a second. So you, what I understand is you have unsupervised learning, you just let them learn, and then actually you go back and try to figure out how they learned. No, I mean, it's Unsupervised learning is one of the examples you have supervised learning as well. But even in the supervised cases, so the recruitment example I was giving before, where you have on one hand, you'd have CVs, uh, for example, you'd have a description of a job, and then you have a decision. The person is qualified or not for, for the job. So even in those cases, you still have those problems of, of bias. And regardless of how we train, how we put in place those models, we need a way we, we need to be sure that once deployed in, in real life, those models would function in the same way we would expect a real person to, to work in looking at ethics, looking at what are human values. And it's not clear, it's not straightforward to say that we embed human ethics or our own values within, within models. Again, those are number crunching machines. So... How do you represent ethics in terms of numbers of or the values and so forth? 
And the was referring to explainability, but you have interpretability to, to start with. So basically someone being able to analyze a model, looking at the structure of the model. So this can go including via visualization of the models. Some of my colleagues work on visualization. So you get this full sort of plot of one single model and you would have uh, the, the flows throughout the model or you would be looking at uh, what we call heat maps. So like for example, an image, you have uh, an output so can be the class associated with that image. And those heat maps, different techniques, different forms, you're looking at activations of the neurons, neurons within, uh, within the network, for example. But in the end, you identify the regions on which the, the model is, is focusing in the, in the image. So different ways to analyze and try to explain deep learning models in particular is not limited to that. One, one important aspect, and this is where the definition of the European Commission, I think, changes a bit uh, with the game. What we had before as explainability techniques, and I'm referring to this in particular because it's closer to the topics and the strategy we, we put in place for, for my group. So when we were referring to explainability, what we had before were more ways of analyzing the model. So what you get as, a, as an explanation is basically a contribution of the attributes the model was presented with. So, for example, in if I were to take a medical more oriented example, you may have someone going to a doctor. I would have a number of symptoms, and then based on those symptoms, I would have to give a diagnostic. So, those symptoms would have a positive or negative contribution in the way the model functions, and this is what you get as an explanation at the very end. I the model provided this particular class output, whatever it is, value because the attributes were positive, negatively contributing in the outputs. And this is supposedly what a doctor is supposed to, to look at. And based on that, and the doctor afterwards should be in that position where he or she would say, well, I understand why the model gave this, uh, this, uh, this output. The only thing is that's a matter of interpretation. Um, so the doctor looking at one form of maybe a way of explaining the model, and the interpretation is subject to background, personal bias. There were studies in the past looking at, for example, the correlation between the fact that a judge had his or her coffee in the morning and the ruling afterwards. So we, we are inherently biased. But the European Commission and what follows, this is 2021, there is a proposal for a regulatory framework that we commonly refer as AI Act. So within this AI Act, there is um, a certain uh, facet, particular angle they take on explainability and trustworthiness in general, where they say it needs to be accessible to the layperson. As if you are to look at that kind of explanation I was referring at before, you need some some skills in machine learning, data science. And this is not something where I think you would want to bring people from financial domain, from the medical domain, different, different other domains they are supposed to operate with the knowledge they have, the concepts they, they normally manipulate, and not those kind of representations. And this is where I think it's important maybe to, to insist and to, to follow that if those tools exist today, maybe in, in a specific form, and they're not entirely accessible to large different sectors, we, we would have Luxembourg and abroad, of course. It's not that things will, will be as such the aim in, in the future, and this is where... I'm trying to, to take my group is to provide the means to explain models in ways that incorporate what are concepts we normally work with and that explain decisions or outputs in general in ways that can be understood by someone which is not coming from the machine learning domain, from the AI domain. 
So we'll see after today's episode what the listeners say, whether you explained everything okay. well or not. <laughs> you... Always open for questions. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But yes, it's very interesting. And you mentioned that legal framework. So I was just wondering, legal framework in the EU versus legal framework in the US, where is it better for an AI specialist right now? Well, I think we are a lot more restrictive in the European Union. And the AI Act, so the proposal we have for the uh, Regulatory framework is supposed to move into what is a full framework, regulatory framework by, by the end of this year. And now we, we've, seen, we've seen already this with the GDPR in the past. It was already very difficult, I think, for companies to, to adapt to the GDPR. The upcoming regulatory framework uh, will be GDPR squared, will be some... Cubed. Yes, some, some additional complexity to it. And also knowing that there are recommendations within the AI Act Again, as a proposal at this current stage, recommendations like uh, every member country in the European Union would have a regulatory sandbox. And this is a recommendation. So the first one we have in Europe, for example, now is in Spain. It was launched last year in Brussels. I think there will be such regulatory sandboxes in each of the European Union's countries. But then you need to look at a certification authority. So who has the right, in, in the way we proceed today with the GDPR, so who has the right to say this particular application combining, and I'm referring a lot to, to health because I think this is where you would generally see a high risk, but who is allowed to put on the market an application that is a diagnosis, diagnostic for a patient, even with uh, the supervision of a doctor? So who takes the responsibility for that? So there are many questions related to how we bring the AI in our our everyday life. And I think this is where my own own opinion, the European Union is taking the right uh, the right steps to be, I mean, in the sense of being more restrictive. Then there is a side effect, uh, which can be negative of that, where we may be at times behind. It's not just the, the US, if you're looking at China, the same Asia in general, they would be quite advanced with respect to what is AI. And this means they would have, at times, maybe unrestricted access to data, maybe not entirely following what may be ethic, um, or ethics principles in, in Europe. So there is, of course, a side effect of imposing some constraints, but on the longer term, I think this will pay back. You also mentioned when you were talking about the AI Act earlier that there are those applications that are completely banned. Yes. So what did you mean by that? So things like, if you're looking at tracking, of persons. Imagine we would be using all the different cameras we have now over Luxembourg to recognize and, and track people. So this would be one, one example. And it's important to, to differentiate between what is sort of general usage of AI um, in, in areas where it's not originally intended to be used and what is purpose or justified by purpose usage. So if I am to, to use the, the AI in, in the framework of, um, let's say, a company for, for safety reasons, so I need to understand if someone falls down, for example, within a factory, and then if someone needs to intervene. So this is not at the same level as simply just tracking everyone and understanding if someone fell on the street. And we, we have those, those cases. Other examples would be on manipulating people. So imagine you would have an interrogatory and then... We've seen those examples with generated artificial faces, right? so people that do not exist. So now we have more advanced models that can generate video, for example, a video from text. So you would be prompting a model to generate one particular video. So someone in 
interrogatory room, which is now presented, let's say, with the image of a relative and basically coercing the person to don't give one particular answer. So those would be cases where use of AI is banned. Generally speaking, if you're interacting by an application, by a website, regardless, with an AI, then you need to be aware, really, that you are interacting with uh, with an AI. Now, the, the way I think we would be advancing is also very much sector-specific. It's a question of what is AI? If I look into... Maybe we should have started with that, what is AI? Yes. There is something which is called the AI paradox, because what we are referring at as being AI 30 years ago, now would be maybe really the examples you would have in your, not entirely your everyday life, but for example, in the washing machines, we have those um, fuzzy systems. So at the same, at that time would have been maybe considered as being at least machine learning. Maybe I would not know to what extent truly AI. But there is this evolving definition of what is AI. This is continuously changing, right? Um, but if I go to the, for example, the banking sector, you would have uh, those uh, scoring mechanisms where someone, for example, uh, applying for uh, for a loan may be accepted, rejected. So is that AI? And I mean, the implication being, does that fall under the, what is the regulatory framework? Should it comply with uh, the different requirements? So there is this discussion around what we classify, of course, as AI. And the high-level expert group on putting in place that trustworthy AI definition also gave a rough description of what AI is. And as I was saying before, I think this will be evolving with the different applications we would see. The ongoing discussions at this very moment would be not to regulate large language models. This will have, of course, implications. And being, Why not regulate them? The question of, on one hand, I think more on access to, to those models Behind, it's not like just browsing the, the internet, right? You would get answers. So in, in some sense, you would have access to knowledge. So do we want to restrict access to knowledge? On the other hand, you would have only those large companies that can train such models. So training model like like ChatGPT, I think it's on the scale of 12 millions, if I remember correctly. There are costs of simply just running running the model. So it's, of course, not something that a small company can do. And then there is, of course, a certain interest on, on that side. So having access or not necessarily restricting the models. And if you're looking at small companies, SMEs, this would not entirely create a fair competition on the other end. So there, there are a lot of discussions on what are the regulatory bodies. Myself, I would be probably a bit too far to, to give a very opinion. But then we we follow closely on what is the evolution of the AI Act, just because we know, when I say we, I'm referring to my group, I'm referring to, to LIST, uh, we know there will be an impact in Luxembourg, and not only, but in the same way GDPR had an impact in, uh, in the past. And from the moment we have the regulatory framework in place, quite likely we speak of an adaptation period, some form of grace period. But at some point, companies need to align on what is the regulatory framework. And this means being able to answer with uh, technical means, uh, with means being put in place within the company in the same way we would have today a chief data officer, for example. So to to answer, to put in place the means that finally make the company compliant. And this is where we normally would want to step in. So to provide support for, for companies 
getting this mission of technology transfer transfer applied research in Luxembourg. Okay, so now we have the future when it comes to regulatory framework. What about just AI as such? Where do you think? Where are we heading? What's the next, I don't know, chat GPT-like craze that is coming? Do you see something in the horizon? It's really tough to anticipate. And I, I say this because um, five years ago, if I if I would have had exactly this question, I would not have been able to anticipate chat GPT. And when you're looking at AI, we were speaking of an exponential evolution. We as humans, we are quite bad with exponentials. And we tend to think more in a linear manner. So I'm I'm quite sure whatever I, I would say at this very moment, I can speculate, of course, but one year from now, two years from now, I will be proven wrong. What I think will be interesting to see, I, I don't see we're actually going for this particular direction. Those models, like ChatGPT, they, they are trained with knowledge up to, ChatGPT was up to December 2020, so anything coming 2021, if you ask questions, you will quite likely not get a proper answer. But because this this way of training the models, right, you only get what are supposedly factual answers. But imagine a scenario where you provide the model with knowledge, let's say, until 2010. And then you would ask the model, or you would train the model, if I take this from a different angle, you train the model to infer based on the knowledge it had until 2010, knowledge that would only be accessible afterwards. So basically being creative, being able to invent. And this is where, if we get to such a point, I think we would see an increase of that exponential. As now you have a model which discovers knowledge. So this is a part that we don't entirely have. I mean, you have models that are used in, in research, but still a model that discovers knowledge and then it can incorporate that new knowledge within what it has as inputs and then continue further from that. I think this aspect of exponential is also important in looking at what may be the future because we we have been referring at the singularity in AI So different points where, for example, the AI surpasses the, say, the capacity, the, the cognitive capacity of a human brain, but then when it surpasses the capacity of the entire human race. So at which point, I mean, we, we get to not being able to understand those models, regardless of what we put in place. And, you know, this is some, in some sense debatable, because if I say I understand how a person thinks and functions, that's not entirely true. And we have exchanges at some high level, but if I were to look at how a brain functions, how neurons fire and so forth, I would not be able to explain how a person thinks. So the same quite likely to stand with AI in the future. But the future evolution, what I can maybe anticipate on the short term, more extensions of what ChatGPT does, but with connection to audio, to video, We have those examples of prompting to generate a video. So imagine entire movies which are just generated based on, on a text. The text in itself can be generated by another model, starting from maybe some, some very basic idea. Being, being creative, depending on how we define creativity, this can be in, in some sense noise which corresponds to some particular objective function. So this is where I would see models developing in the, the near future. and. And there is a question of application, because this is also part of that future, how we use those, those models in, in the education. So um, being a sort of a model that goes along the, the path of a person gathering knowledge can be from the early stages of learning until later in life, when maybe you need to specialize in one, one particular topic. 
It can be combinations with new technologies like the metaverse. So how do I represent myself within the metaverse? Can be an avatar, can be just an artificial sort of uh, character. How do we define uh, personality traits? Those I think would be in the more immediate term, including with applications where we we need to gather knowledge. So we we've seen it already with Google and Microsoft. So Google issued this code red because they they were feeling somewhat threatened. Instead of just going over the internet and trying to find 100 websites where you're you're looking for the right information, tomorrow I think you'll be just um, asking a question. And we get back to the is it the right question? But different different story. But you'll be trying to find the right knowledge without going through masses masses of data. And this is quite likely in the more immediate term. I would say. Okay, so a lot of directions to go to. I was just thinking that we're already overproducing content. So if we are just going to do even more in five minutes, then we will have a serious crisis of consumption because it's one of the problems, right? That it's just there's more content than we're actually able to consume. Sure, but I think this will be content adapted to the person. So if I so if I go back at home and will say I, I would want to read one particular book because I'm interested in in the topic in the subject and can be sort of general type of literature right and can be technical literature and books um, but if the book is really generated for me because I have one particular mood at that moment I have particular interests I've been reading maybe this or that other book in the past the same can be with movies so I think it can go in that direction where we're not necessarily flooded with uh, with information but we have information adapted to us which of course is also something to approach in a in a careful manner because it can be at the same time limiting your your not seeing anything else than what may theoretically be adapted to you but at that at moment There are two th- two directions I, I think I see here. The first one is then then you're sharing even more data about yourself because of course if you are saying what kind of mood you are in and whatever then well probably somebody's going to collect that from you. That's the first thing. And the second thing, I recently had a discussion here at RTL with one of the hosts who was telling me you know about the competition between radio and platforms like Spotify and the fact that now you know you might have like an AI DJ who will be just commenting and whatever and then what is the advantage of of the radio and we were talking about the fact that even if there are those algorithms that suggest to me the songs and they are getting better because of course at such a moment I gave up on not sharing the data and now they know what I like so they are getting better but I don't go out of my bubble And as I am a music freak myself, I actually like being challenged. So I like listening to certain people, certain programs, because they show me something that I haven't thought about. And that, I always think that most probably that is not going to be shown by the algorithm, but who knows? For me, it's a way of how we put in place those models. Of course, the information the model has, has access to is the very critical part. So for understanding the person... Beyond just the individual, I would say, and this is, of course, I'm going into what may be pure speculation. Looking at different individuals, so, you know, when you're going on online shopping and you may have recommendations, so that's based on your past track record on on shopping. But so looking at what other people bought, right? So then this is how you get recommendations. But the same would stand with, well, you're listening to this particular tracks, but then based on this kind of profile. Even though it may not be close to what you're listening, I can maybe recommend something else because you're, you're likely maybe to um, to to appreciate that. When I feel I'm original, there's nobody else who has that taste. Um, yeah, I know that's very idealistic, say, probably. <laughs> I'm going the, in the wrong direction, but if we can quantify originality, 
Oh my, <laughs> I don't want to quantify that, you know, come on, the, the creativity will be quantified and uh, no. Go, of course, in the more philosophical angle of the questions. The same would stand for creativity and the same would stand for, of course, originality and many other different traits which well, that we associate with what is human nature. Of course, so we had a guest here at the studio a couple of months ago, Professor Christoph Purschke, and we were talking about linguistics and and Axumbagish and computational models and all that. And he was, you know, talking about quantifying sarcasm. And that's also something that's very interesting to me. How do you do that? Because there's always that problem. I love sarcasm. There's always the problem of people not understanding it, right? So then how do you actually manage to have some numbers behind it so you can replicate it. It's also interesting. Who knows, maybe the next chat GPT will be sarcastic. For sure. I'm convinced it can be trained for that. I never try to sort of like launch a question, say answer in a sarcastic manner. I'm, I'm pretty sure you can actually get an answer that may sound a bit sarcastic. And if I take this to maybe a different level, or if I look from a different angle, I mean, probably we didn't think of models in number crunching models in the end, being able to understand what we mean by a question. And is sarcasm something maybe at the same level, something that somewhere in the numbers can be quantified? The example I was giving with models that generate faces, right? So this goes back to somewhere in the model, you are able to extract some traits that define that, that person. So it can be someone which has, I don't know, brown hair, blue eyes, regardless. So if you have an artist, based on those traits, the specifications, an artist would be able to draw someone which have those traits. So the model would function somewhat in somewhat similar manner. But if we think of sarcasm as something that can be put within within a number, in some, some manner that would be specific to an AI model, then of course you would be able to generate output that would be sarcastic. I think that we have a lot to look forward to, maybe not, but we are definitely also need to look forward to the answer to the question because sure. we're getting close to the end of the podcast. So let's go back to the question, if you can remind us what the question was and then what the answer is. So I was asking how models like ChatGPT would compare to the human brain, especially looking on the more cognitive side. And I was saying there are a number of nuances in, into this. So one from a more mechanism, mechanistic perspective. So uh, like uh, GPT-3 would have somewhere on the range of 475 billion parameters. Human brain, on the other hand, is uh, somewhere somewhere on the range of 400 trillion connections. So, I mean, it's not, of course, not the same. Magnitude, no. But we, in some sense, we are not that far, right? I mean, you you speak of less than 1,000, of less than 1,000 to get to that size. And it's important in here also to look at how we build this, those AI models behind. If you're looking at deep learning, mostly you'd have artificial neurons and some other more complex mechanisms. But those artificial neurons already, they're very crude sort of replica, replications of uh, biological neurons. And this is where there were attempts to have an accurate presentation of what is a biological brain in the end of a neural network. Purposes were a little bit different and to study really how the brain functions at that level, a more biological level, to look at different diseases which may impact the, the brain. Which finally make that we cannot capture entirely or in a meaningful manner what would be the cognitive process. You can look at this from some, somewhat from afar. And if you go on the more cognitive side, in those like ChatGPT, 
and our models which now score high on, on different tests, can be IQ, can be mathematics, can be in the law or medical domain type of um, exams. So in that sense, looking at those numbers, right, you get a score on the test, they would be close to what we as, as people can do, in some cases even surpassing what we can do. You take an individual, won't be as an individual someone that can pass an exam in, in the medical domain, in the law domain and um, in all the different coding at the same time. Quite likely, there aren't that many people that can do all of those things at the same time. But we still have those questions of the, the creativity, of uh, being empathic, being able to understand, truly to understand. And this has absolutely no meaning in, in terms of machine learning when, when you're looking at the models beyond, again, just correlations, numbers. And there is no meaning in, into that. So those models, cognitive processes-wise, uh, they, they compare to what we can do. They sometimes surpass uh, human performance. There is still this this gap. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, that we'll be able to to cover it of embedding what are what are human values. And one one example I was citing in in the past was let's say you have ChatGPT writing a really interesting novel, and you now have on if you go on Amazon, you you'll find books which are written people plus those models may be interesting, right? But if a model simply generates that, that text, uh, that novel, it lacks entirely what was the human experience of someone that wrote. Uh, and this will never be replaced, I think. Uh, you may appreciate the, the style uh, and the story behind, right? But there will be no, no actual experience, uh, human experience. And I think people tend to appreciate more of that, that someone lived through a different experience that led to text, a story to generate, a movie will be in the future, of course, or other creative outputs of what we can do. In short, I would say we are at almost human level artificial intelligence. There will be the next step of generally focus on what is narrow artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence for specific tasks, but we're going for the more general artificial intelligence. And this will be for sure, we will get there. But still lacking some some aspects which I think define more what is human nature. Okay, so a little bit of hope leaving sure. this room today. Hope I was I was really really counting on that because I have a feeling we were just kind of in a doom at certain moment, but we came back. Hope for our humanity. Thank you very much, Alexandra, for coming today. My pleasure. Okay, and this is it for today. As usual, don't forget to subscribe, to follow us, to write to us, ask about the topic we had today or just any other suggestions of guests or whatever you have to say as usual we are on twitter linkedin instagram or wherever you can find us this was silex and my name is hanna siemaszko